Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. Uh, it is, <clears throat> we finally got there. This is extraordinary. Yes, there, there are many more sentences to come, so, so hold, your, hold your applause, hold your applause. Um, it, I, I have to say it is uh, a little bit staggering to see uh, how many of you are here uh, tonight, uh, especially when I happen to know in advance that the uh, quality of the speaker is a little bit subpar. Uh, you, kn- you know that uh, tonight's event is not a, it's not a typical uh, Socrates in the City event, right? You, you knew that already. Today actually marks the 65th anniversary of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So the board of Socrates in the City uh, decided to have a special Socrates event to commemorate the 65th anniversary of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, they realized that a new biography, a staggering uh, and shiny new biography uh, was coming out and they wanted to know if they could get the, the author of that uh, really unbelievable uh, tome uh, to speak. And he's very hard to get, but they were able somehow, if you believe in prayer, I think that's what it was. They just were on their faces and fasting and praying and they were able to, to get the speaker. Uh, so we have the author uh, of that book is going to be our, our speaker uh, tonight. Um, but as I say, this is not really, it's not a typical Socrates in the City event. We normally have different kinds of speakers. But you wouldn't know that if this is your first time. So let me ask, if this is your first time at a Socrates in the City event, would you raise your hands? I'm curious to see how many of you. Look at that. Wow. Now, be honest with me. If this is your last time at a Socrates in the City <laughs> event. Yes, I know. I know. These cro- Who needs the crowds, right? It's like Coney Island indoors. But, um, Okay. But no, if you're here for the first time, you probably don't know the kind of the ground rules of Socrates in the city, and you probably, we have some strange rules. Uh, I'm guessing that the, those of you who are newcomers probably didn't know that you're supposed to, uh, you're supposed to shave your heads. You knew that, right? You didn't, you didn't know that. Um, but uh, the next time you come, if you wouldn't mind, and I hate to tell people how to live or whatever, but that's just the clubs, they have these old rules. Uh, this is an old club. I think it goes back to a whole, it was like a, a, a lice problem or something in the early days of the club. And so they require you to shave, uh, shave your heads. If you wouldn't mind doing that before you arrive next time, we have this at this club. Now, those of you who have um, shaved your heads and are wearing uh, cheap synthetic wigs, uh, which I'm just eyeballing the situation, looks to be most of you, I think. Let me just say, on behalf of Socrates and City, thank you for doing that. I appreciate that. We enjoy meeting these clubs, and if that means, you know, shaving our heads and putting on ill-fitting, um, itchy uh, polyester wigs for a couple of hours, uh, that's, uh, it's all in good fun, right? So it's worth, it's worth doing, but if you're new to this thing, you didn't know that. So thanks for, to those of you who are doing it, and that's a lot of you. Okay, uh, now, you know, as I said, that this is sort of a different Socrates in the City event, and if you've been coming for a while, okay, those of you... Uh, wearing wigs would know this. Uh, we normally have uh, really extraordinary speakers, and by those standards uh, today, uh, alas, we don't have that that kind of a speaker. For example, some of our previous speakers, uh, unlike tonight's speaker, some of our previous speakers were knights of the British Empire, right? We had John Polkinghorne and a few others. Uh, tonight's speaker um, is not uh, a knight of the British Empire. Uh, he is not a member of the House of Lords, like some of our previous speakers. He's not the chief rabbi of the UK uh, that I know of. Um, tonight's speaker was never, well, you, you never know. Um, tonight's speaker has never been on the cover uh, of Time magazine. 
Uh, tonight's speaker never ran for president. We've had Socrates and the city speakers who've done all these things and more. Uh, tonight's speaker is not one of the top physicists of the 20th century. Uh, although, to be fair, the jury's still out on the 21st century. We don't know what he's going to do in his career, but probably, uh, well, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so he's not, he's not that. Uh, tonight's speaker, unlike a, one of our previous speakers, tonight's speaker was not involved in Watergate. <laughs> D- directly. Um, but, uh, so I think we have to just face facts that tonight's speaker is, is a little bit, a little bit different. A little bit different than what we're used to. Now, I should say this. For, for one thing, tonight's speaker is the first speaker we've ever had uh, that suffers from severe incontinence. Um, I believe that's why he's not here yet. Uh, he's supposed to be seated right here. He's not yet here. I guess he's, uh, he's in the boys' room or something. They tell me that, uh, that he's, fu- he's fine. All right. <laughs> But, uh, but uh, he'll be here eventually, but he's, he's obviously not, uh, not here uh, yet. Um, okay, so I, so I say that tonight's speaker is not on, on par with, with our previous Socrates in the City uh, speakers, and at the same time, I find that I have a certain affection for him. <laughs> you can almost say that he's like a, like a brother uh, to me. In fact, and this is, is kind of weird, but his brother uh, is actually my brother also. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it turns out that one of his parents uh, is related to one of my parents uh, by marriage. It's, it's very strange. Yeah, think about that. It works out. Yeah. Um, now, as I looked at the bio of tonight's uh, speaker, I confess I had a very strange... Hey, Lou, I'm over here. Lou, ho, ho, I'm over here. Yeah, come on. It's, uh, is that a seat for the councilman? Is the councilman? Okay. Councilman, come up higher. Come up higher, brother, to the chief seats in the synagogue. Come on. And ironically, his name is Gentile, Gentilly. I and mean, it's unbelievable. All right. All right. See what happens when you show up late? It's not good. It's not good. All right. Uh, the, um, as I was saying before Lou interrupted with the councilman, uh, as I was saying that, that uh, when I read the bio of tonight's speaker, hey, how you doing? Uh, as, I, as, I, as I read the bio of tonight's speaker, I got kind of a spooky, uh, spooky feeling. It, was, it was, made me a little bit uncomfortable because there were some similarities. It was kind of like the Lincoln... You know, the Lincoln-Kennedy uh, thing with the penny? You know, like the... You don't know that? You should read the Inquirer more often. Um, but there were some strange similarities, I have to say. For example, uh, tonight's speaker grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. I also grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. I thought that's kind of weird. Uh, tonight's speaker went to Yale, okay? I also went to Yale. Now, you know, a lot of people go to Yale, but I, I just thought that's kind of weird. Um, uh, tonight's speaker worked for VeggieTales. Uh, that's really weird. I also worked for VeggieTales, uh, I thought that's really incredibly strange. And then, and then I read that he, tonight's speaker was also had been published in the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, and I thought, well, that is really, really strange because I have also been published in the New York Times and the Atlantic Monthly. <clears throat> and then the, the final one, I, I, you know, the odds, just, it just gets more ridiculous. He's been a commentator on Fox News and CNN. And I thought, uh, ooh, what? You watch TV? Great. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Anybody here from Bermuda? Ooh. Um, and... Um, by the way, if you're late, we're mocking you. Um, but I thought, you know, that's unbelievable. So he's been on Fox News and CNN. I've been on Fox News. I mean, it just gets more and more strange. I had the strangest feeling that this guy, tonight's speaker, has been sort of shadowing me throughout my whole life. Something like the way Claire Quilty shadows Humbert Humbert in Nabokov's Lolita. In fact, the whole thing really did have a Nabokovian 
doppelganger feel to the whole thing for, for me. Now, um, if you don't get the whole Nabokov reference, let me just say that I, as the host of Socrates and City, know that many of you, you know, you have business backgrounds. <clears throat> You're busy climbing the ladder of success. Maybe the last great work of literature you read was Who Moved My Cheese or something like that. And I, and I want you to know, in all honesty, that I do sincerely look down my nose at you for this. But please do not take that personally, okay? Because that really is the whole point of Socrates in the City, to help bring people in the financial world and business world into the rarefied world of ideas. <laughs> Socrates in the City takes its cue, you know this, okay? It's what we're about. We, Socrates in the City takes its cue from Socrates, uh, who, who famously said, the unexamined life uh, is not worth living and then he blew his brains out in an alley. Okay, you remember that? Unbelievable, that's so sad. Now, obviously, I'm kidding. Socrates said that, right? And we thought, you know, that we take that as our motto at Socrates and City, to ask the big questions uh, and, and to, to look into the big things. The kind of stuff you're not gonna hear at the 92nd Street Y, for example, okay? You know, I'm just saying, right? When they're interviewing, you know, uh, Kirstie Alley or something up there. But um, we really want to get into the big meaty questions, and that's what we're all about here. So we're, 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 uh, our point is to draw sophisticated New Yorkers, that would be you, um, into examining the big questions. And um, well, so as I said before, the parallels between the speaker's life and my life, they were, they, they, it was really kind of freaking me out. So that's where I got to the whole doppelganger thing, right? I said, all of this stuff, it, it, can, it can't be true that I've done these things, and he's, I guess it, it could. It could. Technically, it could. And so I said, I'm going to let it go. However, uh, when I got to the part in his bio that said he had founded Socrates in the city, I said, no, that, that's not possible. That's not possible. I, I, I realized, I know that I founded Socrates in the city. So there was just simply no way that he could also have founded it. And when I read that part of the bio, I realized that he was either nuts, okay, lunatic, or he was an out-and-out -out liar. Or he actually was the founder and host of Socrates in the City. There are only those three options. He's either lunatic, liar, or founder and host. And thank you for being a C.S. Lewis literate group of people. Explain that to your neighbors. <clears throat> right. And I, I uh, some people would, would like, you know, to make tonight's speaker out to be, you know, a great moral teacher for example, okay? Uh, but by making the claim in his bio to be the founder and host of Socrates in a City, he has not left that option open to us, okay? He forces us logically to see him as either lunatic, liar, or founder and host of Socrates in the City. I confess I think he's either a lunatic or a liar because he can't be the host of Socrates in the City because I know I am the host. Look at me, I'm hosting right now, right? <laughs> I'm kind of offended that he would, he would claim that. Uh, so, so unless he and I are the same person and I'm somehow unaware of that, then he's just lying or, or, or plain nuts. Now, we've never had a lunatic or a liar <clears throat> as the speaker of Socrates in City before. Gerald Schroeder was a little kooky, uh, but certainly, not, I mean, you know, that was intentional. That whole, that Irwin Corey shtick that he does, Professor Irwin Corey, that was intentional. Uh, we had Sir John Polkinghorne claim to have been knighted by the Queen of England, which is, uh, sounds, on the face of it, sounds insane. 
But we looked into it, and it actually happened. He really was knighted by the Queen of England. So tonight marks the first time we've had someone who was a lunatic or a liar as our speaker. Uh, keep that in mind when he starts talking. Is he ready? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, how about a warm Socrates in the city uh, hand for our speaker, Eric Metaxas. Come on in. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's certainly the <clears throat> longest introduction I've, I've ever uh, received, and I do, a lot of, I do a lot of speaking. But thank you, Eric. That was uh, that's, uh, incredible. I have to say, uh, Eric, you're a, you're a tough act to follow. Uh, but um, something tells me I'm up to it. <clears throat> How far can, can this go on? This feels like, what, like a wacky 60s or 70s sitcom, doesn't it? Uh, it really does. It really, it's like a Patty Duke show, or I don't know. There are all kinds of corollaries here. Um, but I really feel like that's sort of the apotheosis of my life, to, have inhabit, to inhabit a, a 60s or 70s sitcom really uh, defines me. That's my goal in life. So the extent that I've realized that this evening, I want to say thank you for making this fantasy real for me, for, for, for showing up here. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, as our, our uh, <clears throat> hermaphroditic introducer just said a few moments ago, um, no, he, he's cool with it. He's cool with it. Uh, tonight, um, tonight is a, is a special night. It's the 65th anniversary of uh, the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, it is uh, the official launch of my biography of Bonhoeffer, and what a beautiful thing to be able to launch uh, this book on the very day, uh, 65 years ago, when Bonhoeffer uh, went uh, to his death, a martyr's death, I might say. Um, it really is, uh, it's, a, it's a special day. The, we wanted to do something special in New York City. It wasn't going to be a Socrates in the City event, but um, we, we couldn't think of anything else, so... Um, <laughs> But uh, we really thought it was, was appropriate because today really is um, a special day. So uh, having written this book uh, for me, was it, it was extraordinarily difficult. My wife and daughter are here. They can raise their hands, right? Are they here? Are they here? There, there they are. And that's why well, I didn't mean to embarrass them. I was just going to say, unfortunately, they can well attest to how difficult the process it was to write the book. It's okay to titter. Um, it really was, uh, it was, it was, it was difficult. It was very difficult. It was a long book. Um, I want to say uh, a little bit of how I came to write this book. Now, some of you are familiar with Bonhoeffer. I think if you've been, if you've come here tonight, you know the basics of his life. I want to tell you, uh, a little bit more about him. But Bonhoeffer, um, is known most famously, I guess, for having written two books. One is The Cost of Discipleship, and the other is Life together. These are great works. These are amazing books. And if he had done nothing else but write those, he would be deservedly quite famous. Those books have changed a lot of lives. But he's also famous, of course, for the end of his life when he got involved in the conspiracy to kill Adolf Hitler, who's a bad guy. And um, we, uh, it's always hard to reconcile that, how this man of God, this theologian, uh, could have done that. So that's sort of the background. But I kind of want to go through uh, Bonhoeffer's life and uh, the, um, the introduction was so long, unfortunately, it's cutting to my time. It's just really terrible. <laughs> so annoying. Don't you hate that? Um, but, um, but the fact of the matter is that I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, 
this book um, before I tell you the story. It's a for me, it's a personal book. I'll I'll say this: my father is uh, is Greek, hence my surname Metaxas. My mother is German, uh, hence my deep love for Siegfried and Roy. Right? <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. You've been a great audience. Good night. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is that I had this strange uh, upbringing of being half Greek and half German. And the German side, my mother grew up uh, in uh, Germany during the war, during this horrible war. My grandfather was killed during the war. He was one of those uh, uh, certainly hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of unwilling uh, young men who had to go and be killed for a, a war that was senseless when it began and was incredibly senseless uh, in the last couple of years, utterly senseless. But uh, he was uh, shipped off. My mother uh, lost her father when she was nine years old. My grandfather used to listen uh, to the BBC with his ear against the radio because if you were caught listening, uh, you could be sent to a concentration camp. You were not allowed to do that. But that's uh, my simple grandmother. He would tell me that story, and it, it makes it pretty clear to me uh, what she also said, but it sort of verifies to me that he hated Hitler. And so many of them, of course, hated Hitler, but you certainly weren't in a position to do much about it. And so he went off to war, and he was killed uh, on April 4th, 1944. My mother lost her father. And in many ways, I grew up in the, sh in the shadow of World War II and have always puzzled about the great, uh, really almost unprecedented evil of uh, the Nazis and the Holocaust and, and how it happened. It's something that I've thought about a lot, and, and just the question of what is evil and how do we deal uh, with evil. Uh, I heard about Bonhoeffer's story for the first time uh, in 1988, and I was stunned when I heard the story because I thought, how come everybody doesn't know this story about this German pastor and theologian who got involved in the plot to kill Hitler? And the more I heard, the more I thought, this is just haunting and extraordinary, and someday I'd like to make a movie about it, but I, I didn't become a filmmaker. I became a writer, so I never made a movie about it. Maybe someone else will. But the fact of the matter is that it, it, it sort of captured me. And finally, after writing the book on Wilberforce, people kept asking me, who are you going to write about next? And I thought, well, I don't want to write any more biographies. I didn't even want to write the first biography. It was a very painful experience. Could please go away. But they kept, uh, they kept asking me, who, who are you going to write about next? And, you know, eventually you have to pay the rent. So I thought, I guess, you know what, maybe if I had to write about somebody, if I had to write about somebody it would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is the only person that I can think of besides William Wilberforce who captures my attention in the way that he does. There's something about the life of Bonhoeffer which has always uh, captivated me. And I, more and more I prayed about it, I thought about it. Uh, I thought this is a book that I, that I may well write. And so, of course, um, I did. I didn't plan for the book to be twice as long as the Wilberforce book. Um, that's twice as much work, let me tell you. But, um, but, but, it, but it was. And so um, uh, it's a very personal book for me. I dedicated it to my, uh, to my grandfather, and there's all kinds of stuff there. Maybe if we have time for Q&A, we can go into that. But I want to talk tonight, I want to tell the story uh, of, of Bonhoeffer's life. So let me start first with his family. Uh, Bonhoeffer, first of all, Bonhoeffer was born in 1906. Um, his family, it's one of those families that when you read about it, and this is why I, I went into it at length in the book, it's such a wonderful childhood that it's hard not to be jealous when you read about it. Uh, and I think I had a good childhood, but, but it's, it's, it's a spectacular childhood. His family was one of those rare, rare families, um, the sort of the finest of German culture on, on every level. His father, and I didn't know this, his father was the most famous psychiatrist in Germany 
from the, uh, for the first half of the 20th century. So he was a huge figure. Uh, when the, the Reichstag was burned down later on in 1934, he was called upon to judge van der Lubbe, who was the Dutch arsonist, communist arsonist or whatever. I mean, he was, he was the man. If you needed a, a, a psychiatrist, a public figure, kind of like our Dr. Joyce brothers. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. I meant Dr. Phil. I meant Dr. Phil. Um, no, I mean, he was, he was an august figure. He was really one of the most respected scientists and doctors in uh, in Europe, actually. So this is the father of Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer grows up with this kind of a father, but everyone in his family was similarly spectacular. All of his ancestors were spectacular. Um, his, his, uh, uh, his, his brothers and sisters were ridiculously ambitious. Uh, they, they grew up to be uh, famous in their own right. His, his brother, his elder brother, Actually, there were eight siblings. Uh, his, his elder brother went into physics, okay, and that's kind of, he went into physics. He was working with Planck and Einstein, uh, and he split the atom at age 23. And I've actually seen the atom. It's just like, uh, it's in a case. They have it in a case in a museum in Germany. The atoms were much bigger in those days, much easier to split. He split it with an axe, but you've got to give him credit. He's one of the first ones to split an atom. But he... Uh, but the fact of the matter is, he split the atom, okay? This is, this is Bonhoeffer's brother. The other brother grew, uh, became the, the uh, chief uh, legal person at Lufthansa in the 30s, right? Um, his sisters were geniuses, and they married geniuses, and they were just all amazing people. Bonhoeffer grew up in that family. Uh, when uh, World War I came, uh, Bonhoeffer's um, elder brother, he was the youngest of four brothers, uh, one of his brothers was killed uh, in the war. It was utterly devastating to the family. Uh, and I go into all this history in the book. It's just, I have to say, it was amazing for me because I, I didn't know this history. So to learn this history and then to be able to write about it, I, I want to teach because it's so interesting to me, but this German history. So his brother's killed. Something happens. Bonhoeffer, at the age of 13, uh, a year after this event, decides he wants to become a theologian. He declares that he's going to be a theologian. Now, um, pretty interesting, because in the, in the Bonhoeffer family, you didn't become a theologian, okay? The theologian, you know, the, the father, as I say, he was ultra-logical and scientific, and so, so the idea of becoming a theologian was a little bit odd or something. So he was probably, I shouldn't say probably, he was mocked by his elder brothers and sisters. It was very hard to be uh, in that family, I think. I think that sitting around the table, you'd be really, really, really careful what came out of your mouth. And I shouldn't say, uh, like I'm speculating, this is true. If you read my book, there's all kinds of quotes. It was a tough family, not in a bad way, but if you said cliches or if, if you spoke in an unthinking way or if you spoke before you had thought through what you meant to say, you were at the Bonhoeffer's table, and you were going to be ripped apart. So they were trained to think logically, uh, and Bonhoeffer, Dietrich himself, was trained to think logically, very logically. Um, and he really thought that, I'm going to take that into the world of theology. I'm going to apply the same standards to the world of theology as my father has applied to the world of brain chemistry, uh, as my brother has applied to the world of physics. He really grew up in a family where nothing less would suffice. And so... He decides to do that. Uh, he goes first year at Tübingen uh, in Germany. Lots of the family went to Tübingen. Uh, and then in, at age 17, a dream come true for him. He takes a trip to Rome. Now, Rome for him was, you know, uh, well, it is the holy city. But for Bonhoeffer, uh, this was very exciting for him on a number of levels. And it was there in Rome at age 17, uh, which was, what, 1923, uh, 24, he for the first time saw or thought about the idea of what is the church? 
because he was obviously raised in a Lutheran church. They were not big churchgoers. His father was an agnostic, but uh, they, were, they were quite serious Christians. Uh, his uh, governesses actually were very serious. Herrenhuter, you know, the pietist mold, the Moravian mold, uh, Zinzendorf, uh, very serious Christians. His mother was somewhat in that mold as well. So he really early on ha- had, had God in his life. Um, but when he goes to Rome... Suddenly he asks the question, what is the church? And he realizes suddenly the church is not only the Lutheran church or the Protestant church. He looks, uh, it was uh, Palm Sunday uh, in 1923. He sees uh, people of every race worshiping at the mass and so on and so forth. And this really was an epiphany for him. He recognizes that uh, this is going to be a question that's going to, uh, he's going to be asking and answering for the rest of his life, which in fact he does, and it affects, it affects everything. Um, so then he comes back to Berlin. He studies in Berlin. And to be a theologian in Berlin at this time was to study with the finest theologians on planet Earth. There's simply no question about that, that the, that the, the Berlin uh, faculty, it was le- legendary, okay, legendary. And it was all sort of in, in the liberal, historical, critical uh, method. But these were the giants, uh, the latter 19th century, you know, Schleiermacher, whatever. Harnack was still alive and teaching when Bonhoeffer was there. So he is at the place to study theology. There's no place that can top it. He graduates with his PhD at age 21. Anybody in this room do that? I'm just curious. I didn't think so. Um, so, but, um, but I have to say that he graduates when he went. So he's a little bit, uh, he can't get ordained, right? Because he was interested also in pastoral work, not just in academics and theology. Um, he goes to, Barcel- to Barcelona for... With Stillman, you're supposed to you're supposed to wave. Um, he goes to Bar- Barcelona. He becomes he's a pastor there for uh, a year uh, at a German speaking congregation in Barcelona. And um, notice I didn't say Barcelona. Um, I just won't say that. I also will not say Nicaragua. You know, I'll say Nicaragua because I'm an American. And I will say American when I mean. United States citizen. Um, I'm just trying to, to ruffle some feathers here because we really, we need the room. So if anybody wants to leave. Um, so Bonhoeffer, uh, finally, he's at age 24. He's still kind of wondering what to do with himself because he can't get ordained for another year. And he decides, you know what? I'll go to the United States. I'll study for a year at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, what the heck? My brother, the physicist, has been, to, he's studying and say, so I'll, I'll do that. It'll be good. It'll be culturally broadening. Now, I have to say, this comes to the point in my, in my story. We have some special guests here, so I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. If you are on the board of trustees of Union, would you raise your hand? A little higher. Don't be ashamed. All right. See, we have a member of the board of trustees of Union here, okay? Just to prove that, you know, I know people. Yes. Um, but Bonhoeffer studied for a year at Union uh, Theological Seminary. And, and I have to say, and you know this is true because I, I quote Bonhoeffer's words in the book, he did not think much of the theology at Union. I mean, he had been at Berlin, okay? So to come to any place, he, he was a Ph.D., you know, he, he could have taught there. So he was pretty bored. In fact, he was very bored by the theology and kind of depressed. And he, he wrote about it. He thought, this is kind of pathetic. But while he was there, he met a fellow student named Frank Fisher from Alabama, African-American. 
And Frank Fisher, as a part of his social work that he had to do at Union as a student, had something going on up at Abyssinian Baptist Church up in Harlem. So Bonhoeffer tags along. So this fair-haired, uh, bespectacled German uh, cleric follows along and goes up to this black church up in Harlem. And what he experienced there completely blew his mind. He had never seen anything like this. This is 1930, okay? He saw a congregation of a suffering people, okay? Many of the people in that congregation had been born during slavery time, so this was not a theory. This was real. And uh, he saw a, a kind of a, a worship, uh, a life uh, devoted to uh, Christ that he had never experienced in his Lutheran circles. It totally blew his mind. The preaching was Adam Clayton Powell Sr. I write about him in the book. What a figure he was. Senior, not junior, the third or the fourth. The senior, right? No, always has to be a senior. You can just figure that out mathematically. There has to be a senior. Right? So not a congressman, not his father. But okay, so the first one, who was born in 1865, three weeks after Appomattox, that one, okay, who was a staggering preacher. And this was like a megachurch in Harlem. Bonhoeffer goes there. He's blown away by this, like, fire and brimstone, real deal preaching. These people actually believed this stuff, okay? It wasn't this kind of, like, mainstream Protestant, you know, I'm not mentioning St. Thomas's by name. Where is he? Where is he? We have the... I'm not mentioning, you know, I'm not... Actually, actually, if I joke, it means, you know, you're, you're safe because uh, there's certain churches I wouldn't mention. But... um. But the fact of the matter is that they really believed this stuff up there. The worship, okay, what Bonhoeffer quaintly thought of as Negro spirituals, he, he couldn't believe this music. These people were singing this music as though it weren't merely music. They were worshiping God through this powerful music. Bonhoeffer had never seen anything like this. He was stunned. He went there every single week afterward. He worshiped there, and he taught a Sunday school class there, and he got extremely involved in the lives of these uh, African Americans. Um, it changed his life. It changed his walk with Jesus Christ. He was different. Something uh, happened to him. Uh, now, I should say that uh, Bonhoeffer, of course, his experience in New York, he had all kinds of experiences in New York City, and I won't go into them now because we don't really have time, but uh, we're working on uh, a proclamation from the mayor or something like that, or perhaps we'll name a street after him. And that's why the, the councilman who showed up late, yeah, he's going to make that happen. So he's right here. Isn't it unbelievable? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just going to make it happen. This guy delivers. He's got the juice. He's right here. Yeah, he's right. it's unbelievable. So, but actually, that's something we're, we're, we're working on, and um, we're looking at 42nd and Park right there under, uh, under the... That's, uh, we're going to make it like a park and stuff and close off traffic, but he, he's going to make it happen. You watch. So, so Bonhoeffer, uh, anyway, he's, he's in New York. Now, here's, here's kind of a freaky thing, okay? The blacks and the Jews, okay? Follow me, follow me. Uh, worshiping in this church, this African-American church, totally changed him, okay? But something else happened, uh, which uh, you couldn't predict. On Easter of 1931, there's only one Easter in Bonhoeffer's life where he was in the United States of America, and that was 1931. On that Easter day, he could not get into any of these big, wonderful, mainstream Protestant churches, because, you know, people like to go to church on Easter. Even if they don't believe it, church is nice, you wear the hats, the whole thing. It's really nice. And uh, he could not get into any of these churches. You needed tickets. And so on this day, this German, you know, who was, he hadn't prepared, he didn't know the ropes or whatever, he could not get into one of these churches. So what did he do? He went to a synagogue to hear Rabbi Stephen Wise preach. Now, when I read that, I said, this is crazy stuff. 
This is crazy stuff. That Bonhoeffer, who has this incredible relationship with the Jews through the rest of his life. But in 1931, on Easter, he goes to a synagogue, not to a church. And he hears Stephen Wise uh, preach. Uh, a couple of years later, he wrote. Stephen Wise is a famous synagogue named after him uh, on West 68th Street. Stephen Wise was a very big deal, very a real leader in Jewish affairs in America, friends with FDR. And two years later, Bonhoeffer and his friend Paul Lehman wrote a letter to, bon- to uh to Rabbi Wise in 1933 when Hitler was starting uh, the trouble with the Jews, uh, and they wrote a letter to Wise. So this incredible connection. Um, and we have here a special guest tonight. Some of you, uh, I, I warned you that, uh, that he'd be coming. I got an email about a year ago from a guy whose name seemed very familiar. It was also Stephen Wise. He says, this is, this is kind of weird. Who is this guy? It turns out it's the grandson of Stephen Wise. And would you raise your hand, Stephen Wise, please? Yes, there he is. What a, what a privilege to have gotten to know uh, this Stephen Wise. And, uh, and I, I have to say that this story, uh, it, it gets, it get, there's even more because this Stephen Wise has been very involved uh, in trying to get Bonhoeffer's name uh, on the list of righteous Gentiles at Yad Vashem. Incredible story there. This man has been a hero in that. Yeah. Not, not that Bonhoeffer cares at this point, but, you know, we, we care. We care. So we'll see. Um, but very exciting. Well, Bonhoeffer goes back, of course. It's 1931. He goes back, and people realize he's changed. Something has happened. He was extremely serious about God before, and his theology was correct. If you read his stuff, you understand that he really was, uh, you know, a theologically orthodox Christian. But something happened as a result of his experience at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. He is different. Uh, his friends notice it. They see that uh, he, he, um, he seems to take the whole thing somehow more seriously. He goes to church more often. Um, he now takes a position, of course, teaching on the theological faculty of Berlin University, which, as I said before, was the most august theological faculty uh, anyone could be on. And Bonhoeffer, behind the lectern, is saying things that one does not normally say at Berlin, in Berlin theological circles. He referred to the Bible uh, as the word of God, as though it was actually alive, as though God existed and would speak through the Bible uh, to one. Um, Bonhoeffer... Uh, talked about prayer. He said, you really can't be a seminary student, you can't be a theological student, uh, uh, really, unless you understand prayer, unless you understand how to pray. Um, he took all of these things very seriously, and he began to teach them to his students. And, and really, this went against the typical situation um, in Berlin theological circles, because you simply didn't look at the text that way. You looked at the text as something that, you know, you would sort of pick over. But Bonhoeffer was a, was a Barthian uh, to some large extent, and he really believed that there was a God behind the text, and that that was the whole point of studying the text, to get to the God behind the text, because God actually existed. And even though he revealed himself only by revelation, thank goodness God was in the business of revelation, and he revealed himself, and we could know him. Good news. So... Uh, so Bonhoeffer uh, is changed, and now, of course, the Nazis uh, come to power. Uh, it was uh, already in 32, but you could see uh, 
the trouble um, uh, on the horizon. And Bonhoeffer saw it, and he began to speak in his classes to his students about it. He was not afraid of saying things like, you know, Germany, you know, our, we, we, yeah, we need a savior, and Jesus is, is our savior, not Hitler. He actually would say things like that. And that was obviously not a very popular thing because many Germans rather foolishly looked to a political leader to lead them out of the hell of Versailles and the First War. They really were looking to him and they didn't see a problem with it. Bonhoeffer extraordinarily keenly saw a problem with it. He understood this won't work, that this is is bad. When Hitler became chancellor in February or was the last day of January 1933, a Bonhoeffer, uh, three days later or four days later, gave a speech on the radio in which he talked about the whole concept of the, the Fuhrer principle, which was really what led to, to Hitler's uh, rise to power. There was, there was a, an idea in Germany at the time. It had been popular for a number of decades, especially in the German youth movement uh, of the leader. I won't go into it. I go into it in the book at length. But it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating concept. And Bonhoeffer, in this speech, four days after Hitler becomes the Fuhrer, uh, and is referring to himself as the Fuhrer with a sort of messianic sense, Bonhoeffer, on the radio at age 26, dissects with philosophical precision uh, why this idea is a bad idea, why it's a tautology, it's a snake swallowing its own tail, and it will lead us all to hell. He doesn't say hell because he's a very sophisticated theologian. Um, but Bonhoeffer says this on the radio. The, the radio broadcast is cut off, so he doesn't get to finish. But... Days after Hitler becomes the leader, Bonhoeffer is on the record publicly uh, against him. Um, the church, of course, as some of you know the story of the Confessing Church, was really in bad, a bad place because there are many people that really believed, and you have to give them credit and you have to give them grace. You can't always have this 20-20 hindsight like, well, we, we know Hitler was evil. Well, probably if you were alive then, you would not have known. Okay, because uh, there were many ways. I mean, basically, <laughs> Hitler lied incredibly well and said many, many, many things that would make you, even if you were a lot of things about him you didn't like, you they well. You know, he still, he said this and this and this and this. So many people were fooled. Bonhoeffer was not fooled. Bonhoeffer saw, as I say from the beginning, that this man, uh, what he represents, the philosophy he represents, cannot coexist with uh, Christianity. It, it cannot. Now, if you have a phony, shallow Christianity, it can coexist perfectly fine. But if you actually believe what the Bible says, if you actually know Jesus personally, you are at war with national socialist doctrine. He knew this early on. He maybe wasn't happy about it, but he knew it. Uh, he got involved in the Confessing Church, which was this group that knew that there was trouble and they were trying to break away from the sort of Nazified state church. Germany had a state church. Uh, he became one of the leaders in the Confessing Church, but he even felt there. It was very frustrating. It was very difficult. Uh, it, it was very, very confusing. So he goes off to London. He spends almost two years in London as a pastor of some congregations, German-speaking congregations in London. But he, he, he always was restless, didn't know what to do with himself. In 1935, he comes back. The confessing church, the good guys in the German church, uh, said to him, we would like you to lead a seminary, uh, an illegal seminary. At this point, the Nazis have taken over. This is now an illegal seminary. And uh, he starts one at a place called Zingst, and they move to a place called Finkenwalde. And for a number of years, Bonhoeffer really, um, and this is in his book, Life Together, but he creates a Christian community. He creates a Christian community that is... Um, unlike anything anyone's ever seen. And all the people in the theological world and many of them in the church world thought that, you know, he's gone off the deep end because this is very sort of, you know, Catholic. 
Uh, this is very, you know, they're doing stuff, they're praying and stuff. You're supposed to teach them how to, you know, uh, dissect the scriptures, and, 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 but you're not actually supposed to take it seriously. You're not supposed to pray and meditate on the word of God. And all that. That's, it's a little, a, little, uh, a little more potpourri than they were um, used to. And that's not the kind that you have in your sachet in, in the drawer. Ladies, I'm talking about potpourri. Um, and, um, and the fact of the matter is that uh, Bonhoeffer understood that to fight evil, okay, to live the life of a Christian, we have to train Christians to live as Christians, to learn how to pray, to learn how to worship God, to learn to actually behave as though this stuff is true, not just to be theoretical about it. If you want to be theoretical about it, that's fine, but that's not what we're doing here. This is a seminary. And so he was a real maverick in that sense. And I have to say that... Um, this went on and on, but the Nazis kept tightening uh, the noose, and it became more and more difficult to do these sorts of things um, uh, when Kristallnacht happened. And this is something that uh, I'm really proud of in my book. I'm able, because of a documentary, spe- spectacular documentary made by Martin Doublemeyer, who wanted to be here tonight, could not, um, on Bonhoeffer. Uh, there's a, an interview with Eberhard Beitke, who's Bonhoeffer's was his best friend and is the man who wrote the or text, the reference work on Bonhoeffer from which everything that follows uh, really owes, owes everything to, to, to Beitke. But Beitke in this documentary uh, talks a little bit and in other things I read, I was able to sort of put together that at Kristallnacht, Bonhoeffer in a sense for the first time took a stand that was even radical among the seminarians where he publicly identified the Jews who had been persecuted with the people of God in the scripture. And he said, as Christians, uh, we are obligated. Uh, and f- remember, for him, this was like science and math. He wasn't saying, hey, this is an idea. What do you think? He said, the scripture obligates us to stand up for the people of God. Uh, we may disagree with them theologically or whatever, but, but these are the people of God. And when he was reading the Psalms, and it, it's, it's an amazing thing. I don't want to go into it now, but it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And he said this, and he really startled some of the folks at the seminary uh, at the time. But he took a public stand there for the first time. He talked about Jesus as being the man for others. Uh, the agape love of the New Testament. It's, it's the selfless love that God is this infinite supply of love and God gives us his love, and we are to love others with that love. We have the ability to love our enemies. We have the ability to love others. We have the ability to stand with those who can't stand and help those. He really understood this idea, and he spoke about it. Um, and he was not all that popular. It was, it was very difficult for people to hear this, uh, this kind of stuff. Well, as we know, things only got worse. Uh, in 1938, there were war clouds on the horizon. Bonhoeffer began to understand that a lot of my seminarians, they're good Germans, they don't really understand, and if they're called to go to war, they'll go to war. But I know too much. He came from a family, as I've just said, that was so socially connected and so uh, connected in high circles that they knew exactly what was going on. They had connections all over uh, in the government, and he knew precisely what was happening to the Jews, and he understood that uh, I cannot fight in that war. If I'm called up, I can't go. And he didn't know what to do. He was really praying earnestly, God, you have to show me a way out of this, because I, he didn't even want to be a conscientious objector, and I'll tell you why, because he realized as a leading figure in the confessing church, he would get everyone in the confessing church in trouble, because he would be doing something so publicly that they, in a sense, he, he wanted to follow his own conscience, but he didn't want to follow, he didn't want everyone else to be forced to follow his conscience. So he was going out on a limb. He looks for a way out, and finally gets an invitation to come back to Union Theological Seminary and to escape 
what was happening in Germany. So he comes, this is the most famous thing, but many people know about this in his life, that he, he comes to America. Um, in, in, in my book, I have to say, this is the first full accounting of this time in, in any book. For some reason, because of different translations and things aren't available, it's, it's not really made clear. And I was really thrilled to go day by day, because he was only here for 26 days. Uh, he, he pretty much had gotten off the boat, and he realizes, I've got to go back. I've got to go stand with my people. I cannot... I cannot escape. I cannot escape. I would like to escape, but I can't escape. So he's here for 26 days, and the process of how he makes that decision, uh, it's, it's simply amazing. And, and I, I, I really give chapter and verse in my book from his, from his diaries because this was a, a, a man listening to God and saying, God, what do you want me to do? And when he felt God calling him back uh, to this horrible maelstrom, this place where he knew he would probably die, uh, he went. So he goes back... Uh, in uh, early July of 1939, he goes back with one of the last boats going from New York City to Germany. He takes the boat. He goes back. And when he arrives back, uh, all the seminarians, they see him and they think, what are you doing here? We, we've arranged all this so that you could escape, so that you could go back. You didn't go back. What are you doing here? Well, um, what he's doing there was complicated, and he didn't even tell them. But what happened was his family, which I've described, was such a hotbed of sedition. It was sort of his family was a center of the conspiracy against Adolf Hitler. He had been around the fringes of that. He had been giving them moral support. Uh, the whole family was against Hitler. Bonhoeffer had been there providing moral support, talking to them, uh, helping them uh, feel comfortable about this conspiracy against the German head of state when most Germans would have not been comfortable with it. But when he comes back in 1939, something happens. And Eberhard Baker writes, he says that he went from confession to conspiracy. In other words, he'd been talking about it, he'd been praying, he'd been doing these things, but at some point he felt God leading him to take this next step to actually be involved in the conspiracy. And we don't have time, I don't want to give you uh, too much on that, but I, I think... I explain it uh, pretty well, about as well as it can probably be explained in this book, because it is the question how someone like Bonhoeffer uh, can go and get involved in this. But he does get involved in it. He specifically gets involved with military intelligence, which is called the Abwehr. And it's kind of interesting. You've got turf wars, right? It's like the FBI, the CIA. The Abwehr, you know, was kind of at war with the, the Gestapo. Right? So the Abwehr was this center of the conspiracy. The leaders of the of military intelligence hated Hitler. They hated him, but they're sort of, you know, making nice, nice and playing along, playing along. Meanwhile, they're the center of the conspiracy. So they're constantly trying coups and assassination attempts and whatever, um, obviously not succeeding. Bonhoeffer gets involved with them. He becomes basically a double agent, and he goes around Europe as a double agent for the Abwehr. His brother-in-law, again, remember they're all very well connected. His brother-in-law was one of the top figures in the Abwehr, and his brother-in-law says, you know, we can use you. You've got these ecumenical church connections all around Europe, all around Europe. You spend this time in Barcelona and in London and all over, and you know, uh, you know people there. So we can use you. Uh, now, follow me here. This is tricky, right? The Nazis thought he was doing uh, their bidding, working for military intelligence, traveling around Europe. But the heads of the Abwehr and Bonhoeffer knew that what he was in fact doing was going around Europe to establish contacts with, with his ecumenical friends, his Christian friends around, so that they could get to Hitler uh, and Anthony Eden, that they could get to 
the leaders of the Allied powers so they could establish a connection that there are these conspirators inside Germany working against Hitler. Will you help us? That's Bonhoeffer's job. I won't go into that anymore either. But he gets involved in that. Um, in early 43, he continues to write, things get worse. In early 43, um, he falls in love with an 18-year-old named Maria von Wedemeyer. I won't go into that either, but I, I, I'm really proud to say that literally for the first time in this book, you get the story of this romance because there's, it, it, nothing was published on it until 1992. His, uh, uh, his, uh, Bonhoeffer's fiancé's elder sister, whom uh, Suzanne and I, my wife and I, met a couple of years ago, uh, she published this book of the correspondence between Bonhoeffer and his fiance. It's very beautiful, but it, it doesn't really have a lot of context, and there's just a lot there, and it's kind of complicated, actually. And I was able to sort of tell that story in my book. It's 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 a beautiful and obviously, to some extent, largely tragic story. But he was in love for the first uh, a time. Um, I shouldn't say for the first time. He'd had uh, another woman in his life for a number of years, but that didn't work out. He got involved in this political stuff. So, so that's an amazing story. And, but because she's only 18, the parents were not really very happy with this. And no sooner have they figured out that, okay, we're going to make our engagement public than Bonhoeffer's arrested. Uh, it was April of 43. Bonhoeffer was arrested for a small thing, actually. The Gestapo, who'd been playing this cat-and-mouse game trying to, trying to catch the Abwehr, they, they, under, they see that Bonhoeffer and a number of these others have been involved in something called U7, Unternehmen 7, which was an operation to spirit seven Jews out of Germany and into Switzerland. Bonhoeffer got involved in that. It became complicated. There was sort of money laundering and stuff, and so the Gestapo finally caught them. Bonhoeffer's arrested. Uh, days before he announces his engagement. He's taken to Tegel military prison, treated reasonably well. Um, and he really thought they were, Bonhoeffer and his uh, cohorts, his brother-in-law, they were so smart that they, they pretty much knew that they could outfox the Gestapo and the prosecutor. They could, they could play this cat-and-mouse game and draw things out, and he would be exonerated. He certainly wouldn't be executed. So this goes on and on. Um, but then, of course, uh, while all this is going on, Bonhoeffer has great hope that the conspirators out there who haven't been arrested are going to kill Hitler. And as soon as they kill Hitler, hallelujah, the witch is dead. It's all over. Everybody's going to get out of prison, and this nightmare will finally be over. And the final uh, iteration of this uh, almost decade-long effort to kill Hitler uh, happens, as some of you know if you saw the... Uh, Valkyrie movie with Tom Cruise uh, happens July 20th, 1944. Stauffenberg brings a bomb into uh, Wolfschanz and it explodes. Hitler, of course, survives. And suddenly the whole conspiracy is exposed. For the first time, I mean, they had been operating without anyone knowing what's going on and now the whole conspiracy is exposed. So people... Thousands of people are arrested. Many of them are tortured. Names come out. One of those names was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer now is not just in Tegel military prison for trying to get some Jews out of Germany, which was bad enough, but now he is thought to be one of the leaders in the conspiracy to kill the Fuhrer. So he's transferred to Gestapo prison, which was much less wonderful um, than Tegel military prison. That's quite true. Um, he was threatened with torture. It doesn't seem that he was tortured, but his brother uh, and his brother-in-law were terribly tortured, treated horribly. Um, 
Bonhoeffer knew that his days uh, at this point were probably numbered. But keep in mind, this uh, is the end of 1944. The war is winding down. Anybody with half a brain understands that the Germans are not winning and cannot win the war. But unfortunately, Hitler was not burdened by sanity, and he was still convinced that the war was somehow uh, winnable. So he keeps going on and on. So Bonhoeffer is transferred, as I say, to, to the Gestapo military prison. He's then transferred to Buchenwald. There were some barracks uh, that he and a number of really sort of august, important prisoners were kept there because as the war is winding down, maybe they'll be used as bargaining chips uh, in making peace with the Allies. Himmler and the others were extraordinarily canny, evil men. Um, so he's transferred there. Uh, in, in my book, I, I give the first full accounting of a lot of that stuff as well. It's, it's very interesting. At least I thought it was extremely interesting. Um, there's very little about Bonhoeffer at this time. Uh, I will say that uh, finally, uh, as you can hear the guns of the Americans approaching, okay, this is now uh, the end of, of March, early April, 1945, you can hear the Allies are approaching, and it really does seem that uh, either they're going to be killed or they're going to be freed because the war is over. Hitler is now in his bunker beneath Berlin. It's all over. Um, but this horrible endgame <clears throat> didn't work out well for Bonhoeffer, at least not in the natural. It didn't work out well. Uh, he was um, finally uh, transferred to Flossenburg concentration camp, where on the specific explicit orders of Hitler, he was uh, executed on the morning of April 9th, 1945. That is, of course, exactly 65 years ago today. Um, now, this is where it gets interesting uh, in some ways, particularly interesting for me, because I think the normal uh, way we perceive of Bonhoeffer this what a sad death, the idea that he died, oh, right before the end of the war, and he was engaged to this beautiful young woman, and he was killed. It's just so sad and so tragic. If only, if only, if only. Um, I don't think Bonhoeffer would have quite seen it that way because I want to underscore that everything he did, he did in obedience to the God that he knew and served. So there was a joy there that is unfathomable to someone who doesn't have the kind of faith that Bonhoeffer did. But through history, many people have had that kind of faith, and I would, I would uh, venture a guess that a few people in this room do as well, that you know that God, who is the author of life, that you can trust him, and that even if he leads you to death, you can trust him. Uh, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, it would be very comforting to us to think that Bonhoeffer went to his death that way, but I think he did go to his death that way uh, for many reasons. Much of uh, his writing would indicate that. He wrote a sermon in 1933, um, about death. Imagine what a bummer sermon that was for his congregation. These businessmen from New Canaan, Connecticut, sitting there. Um, this fair-haired cleric talking about death. Um, but uh, Bonhoeffer preached a sermon, and he preached many sermons like this. But here's a quote from one of them, which gives us an idea of what he was thinking in 1933. I'm sure that his thinking along these lines only intensified as the years went on. But in 1933, uh, he writes uh, in a sermon... No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour, waiting and looking forward to being released from bodily existence. He goes on, uh, how do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering 
at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. Bonhoeffer actually believed that. I definitely believe that. It's hard to believe that. It's a challenge to believe that. But I do believe that. Um, Bonhoeffer went to his death uh, as a true martyr. He went with great joy. He went with great joy. Uh, 65 years ago today, this happened at dawn. Uh, his body, the crematorium at Flossenburg, was broken. So Bonhoeffer shared the fate of the many, many Jews who had been killed just as he had in that very same place uh, in that his body was tossed on a pile and burned. That's how um, he left this world. But I think for Bonhoeffer, uh, giving his life for the Jews was an honor. The God of the Jews called him to give his life for the Jews. Uh, It was an honor, and I think he would have thought it a high honor uh, to have his body disposed of in the same way, that his ashes, as they were burned, would have mingled uh, with the ashes of the Jews who died. Bonhoeffer really believed that obeying God unto death is the way to defeat evil, to stand with those who have no one to stand for them. That is, the Jews of Europe uh, is what God calls one uh, to do, even unto death, uh, that, we're lo- that we're called to love that way, self-sacrificially, uh, to give, knowing that God had created him to do that very thing. So if you're doing the thing that you, you realize that God created you to do this and calls you to do this, that God will be with you and that it's not a, a, a phantasm to think that uh, when you give him your life, that he will give you back your life uh, on the other side. So that's the story uh, as I have told it. And I think we have a few minutes uh, for questions and answers. Absolutely wonderful, and it adds a great deal that has not been said before. Wow. Um, I hate to point out that's not a question. That's uh, coming from you. Um, I, I don't think I could do much better than that. Uh, Jonathan, you got something better than that? Uh, No, honestly, coming from you, that means more to me than you can ever imagine. Thank you very much. Let let me give it a shot. Pardon? Uh, Let me give it a shot. Uh, Actually, let me me say this. Let me, putting on my hat uh, as host of Socrates in the City, let me warn you all that you have to phrase your questions in the form of a question. (laughs) And if you go over 14 syllables, people will start hissing, and I will lead them in the hissing. So, form of a question, 14 syllables, go. All right. First part of my question is not a question. Eric, I just want to oh, say... you're breaking my heart. I am so proud of you for getting up here tonight. In this is true all or these false? People. True or false? I know how nervous you get at just the thought of being in front of a crowd. Yeah, that's right. And that did not show tonight at all. Because you never know what will happen. You hit it perfectly. That's, very, that's yeah. very kind of you. And the answer is B. Did I get it right? Okay. B? All right. Yeah. Got it. 
Uh, second part of the question is a question. Um, a lot of people say Christians shouldn't be involved in politics because Jesus wasn't involved in politics. Um, I guess if you stretch that, you can make a case that Jesus also wasn't a spy. Although, do we know he wasn't sent down here by the Father to spy on Israel? That's not my question. But you, but you assure me that you have one. I do. So Jesus wasn't a politician. He wasn't a spy. I, I wonder how you and how you think Bonhoeffer would answer that criticism, you know, that of right. Christians working in those areas. Right. When that's not what Jesus People said. don't know this, but uh, Jesus was an alderman in Nazareth. He served two terms with distinction. Uh, no, um, I, I think when people say things like that, I really, it re, it, to me it reveals the paucity of their thinking. They really, really are not thinking. It's just idiotic even to people say things like that. But that's the level of discourse uh, in, our, in our culture. Uh, no, I, and I, I really mean that. It's just because it's, it's the idea that he wasn't a politician. I mean, what does that mean? We're all, I mean, my last biography, obviously on William Wilberforce, and I know you agree with this, so you know I'm not making fun of you, but, but the, the book on Wilberforce is all about a man whom God led to serve God and people in politics. And that's the whole point, is that if we, if, if we go, God doesn't want everyone to put on a clerical collar. Uh, that's really a terrible, um, um, it's, it's, it's terrible theology, this idea. And, and uh, Bonhoeffer, of course, was a, a cleric, but, but you have to live in the real world. And that's anybody who really understands the Bible and understands what it means to be a Christian means that you've got to serve God with everything. It doesn't just mean you go off and pray. Um, and I think that um, uh, Bonhoeffer, he's a particularly tricky example. It's why my book is so long, because to really explain this, he's a very complicated figure. But the idea that uh, we shouldn't get involved in this or that, I mean, slavery was wrong. If politicians like Wilberforce hadn't gotten involved in politics to end slavery, we might still have slavery today. And there are things today that are wrong. There will, as long as there are human beings, there will be things that need solutions. Now, if you put, uh, if you worship the idol of politics, you're worshiping a false idol. There's no question about that. And I know many people who do that. They think that politics will solve the problem. You can have all the legislators in the world who think the way you do. It's not going to change things. I mean, it's just we need, we need people of, of faith everywhere living out their faith. But anyway, uh, so the answer is B. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, Eric. Uh, obviously, uh, Bonhoeffer and Wilberforce have a lot in common where they live their faith as he's made reference to, in, in, a, in the political forum. Um, where would Wilberforce be focused today in America? You know that I just spoke about Bonhoeffer, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Wilber you know, Jeff, you know that. A and you were like at 75 syllables, so... Um, <laughs> Well, wow. yeah, you know what I mean. All right, let me, let me break and, it down for Bonhoeffer, you. Bonhoeffer, obviously. Wilberforce was the last book. We'll, we'll, we'll go Have we'll another go glass Bonhoeffer. of wine. Go ahead, please. Uh, all right. We're, actually, I speak on Wilberforce a lot, and I get that question a lot, and I don't really have an answer, although I would suspect, if I, if I have to, like, if I'm forced to give an answer, I would say in the media, because the media today is the one place where there is less salt and light 
uh, than any place. In, in other words, in politics, there are plenty of people from all across the spectrum. The politics, people in politics, is, that looks like America to but me. What, right? what issue? But, what issue? Well, the, I, I don't know that there's an issue. I, I can't say that there's an issue. It's, it's, to me, it's a larger thing. It's sort of a whole cultural issue. We live in a culture, the famous philosopher Peter Berger said that we're a nation, America's a nation of Indians ruled by Swedes. We're, we're, a, we're a nation that's incredibly religious, like in India, everybody's super religious, but we're ruled by people that tend to be, at least in the media, they tend to be very secular. And it's not some conspiracy, but they just don't understand people of faith. They don't, they don't understand it. They don't get it. And I really think that it's important for people of faith to be involved in the media so that at least when you turn on the TV, you're not forced to uh, take what you can get, that you have some options. I think today uh, in the media, there are very few options. The, the, the folks in the media, they, they, they hang around with people who hang around with people uh, who don't know anyone that is coming from a biblical worldview. They don't even know what that is. So that sometimes they scorn it, but sometimes it's just pure ignorance and, and you can't blame them for that. We have to teach them and help them. And I think that people of faith ought to be uh, more involved in, in the world of media. Anyway, that's that answer. Go ahead, Chuck. Wow. I'm sorry, but I have to focus on the trilemma that you introduced during the introduction. You know, trilemma is the secret word tonight. You get a free book. Ah. George Fenneman, would you give him a free book? <laughs> trilemma. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Well, I didn't see no duck. If you, and if you can pull I, it back to Bonhoeffer somehow. Oh, I, I think eventually, yes. All right. When you said lunatic, liar, or founder of Socrates in the city, couldn't that author's profile have been corrupted over time and maybe that, that uh, claim was never actually made? Are you with the Jesus Seminar? <laughs> this isn't ad hominem. Uh, the answer would be no. Oh, okay. Next okay. question. Okay. Um, well, uh, uh, did you find, uh, I, since Wilberforce you had to deal with, uh, in research with the English language, was it much harder for you uh, dealing with German and other languages having to do Bonhoeffer? Yes, uh, that is a question. Thank you for that question. See, questions like that, those are good questions. Um, since you Jeff, got no offense, Jeff, question. but, that's, um, but, but, the, but the, um, the answer is yes. I speak some German. Um, I, I don't know any verbs, though, only nouns and adjectives. <laughs> So it really, uh, I always need, need a verb guy kind of as my wingman. Um, but no, I, I don't speak enough German to have been comfortable reading in the original language, but I, but I know enough that I can read paragraphs and sentences and things. And, I, and that gave me great joy to read a lot of stuff in, in the original. But yeah, so that was very difficult for me. The good news and the reason that uh, this book exists and I was able to write this book is because finally enough of Bonhoeffer has been translated into English that I was able to write this book. And as I think I... Uh, I say, or at least my publicist says as often as she gets an opportunity, that it's the first major bio of Bonhoeffer in 40 years. And why is that? Well, because now there's all this information that's now in English that you can actually write uh, something like this. And so I, I'm thrilled that this stuff exists. But So the answer is B. Mm. <laughs> Eric, you didn't spend uncounted hours on this topic simply because it's history. Now, it is fun to spend evenings amusing pseudo-intellectual New Yorkers such as myself, uh, as you do. Um, so my question for you is, having spent these countless hours studying Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his circumstances, did you come away, was there some moment where you said, there's something I need to do different about my life in the country I live in and the evil I face? No. <laughs> but, thank you, but thank you for... 
for calling. And shall we take our next call, please? Welcome to Open Forum. Thank you for calling and sharing. Uh, the answer to that, of course, is the answer to that, of course, is is yes. But uh, I like the first joke answer better, so I'm not going to really. But no, there, there, there's there's uh, there's no question that Bonhoeffer served. To me, he's the ultimate figure of somebody who. He, he teaches you, if, if you're a Christian, how to, what does it mean to live my life that way? And he was in, living in a time where the evil was so clear that it forced him to do what he did. But I have to say that he was not, um, we, we can all look to Bonhoeffer, and this is, my, my greatest hope actually would be that people would read, uh, as a result of my book, would read Bonhoeffer and would study him, because there's, I think, no one who gives us a model the way he does. He models what it is to be a person who is a serious Christian trying to live that life out in the real world, the world of Nazis and spies and... I mean, the, the, and I'm not talking about you guys, but, uh, but the, real, the real world, which is not... It's not a Pollyanna world. It's not a cloister. It's not a monastery. He, to me, he's the ultimate example of that. So he's an inspiration to everybody, not just people who want to get involved in hugger-muggery and cat-and-mouse games with Gestapo, but he is really, to me, the ultimate example, and his theology is impeccable. Um, so, okay, Eric, thank oh, you. Okay, you, um, you're aware that Bonhoeffer was a theologian. No, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, that's what I was going to bring up. The, I learned a new vocabulary word today. It's a German, it's called Umdeutung. Umdeutung means uh, changing the meaning of the words. Are you uh, familiar with the word Frage? No. <laughs> what, is it, what does it mean? <laughs> I'm not. Go ahead, translate. Fra Frage? Yeah, what does it the mean? The word Frage, I guess the, the best English uh, cognate would be question. Oh. Was haben yeah. Sie, was haben well, Sie I gave mein Herr, okay. für einen Frage? Yeah, 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 yeah. Haben Sie einen Frage? It's coming, it's coming. Um, Bonhoeffer is associated with all of the enemies of evangelicalism. He's closest friends with Karl Barth, he comes to America, he goes to Union Seminary, not Princeton, not Westminster, not Calvin. How do you relate to this? You obviously, you obviously haven't read my book. Well, no, I haven't. But Shame on you. I got the question. Uh, actually, no, no, that's a great question. That's a great question. Is that a question? That, yeah, technically. Okay. Uh, that, that, um, no, that's actually a great question, Eric. That, that is a great question, and I'll, I'll answer it this way. I, 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 let me say this. I think my... my don't leave, because you have to hear this. Um, my, my, um, my, my answer is that what I discovered... But, but don't come to the mic either. Uh, no, you're, uh, you're done. You're done. You know, come on, come on. Um, the, 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 I, I just meant don't leave the room. But what I was going to say was that... Uh, just, just you and me here. Um, what I discovered uh, about Bonhoeffer's theology absolutely stunned me. I find him to be, and I did not expect this going in, I found him to be as theologically orthodox as St. Paul or Isaiah. I think... He has been hijacked by people, most notably the absurd God is dead movement of the 50s and 60s, that somehow absurdly uh, thought of him as one of their own. And it, you don't need to know very much to pretty quickly see that that is absolute 
nonsense. And to some large extent, I think my book, without trying to be polemical or trying to give my opinion, reclaims Bonhoeffer uh, using his own words uh, for uh, contemporary evangelicals and, of course, for you know, lots of other people. But, but I have to say I was stunned by his theological orthodoxy, and I was much more stunned by how people uh, would take a few little things that he said completely out of context and run around the world five times with this, with this little thing which they had no business holding in the first place and make a whole theology, a false theology and a false image of Bonhoeffer, which really um, needed to be uh, to have the, the light of, of uh, truth shown on it. It really needed it. I had no idea going into this project how badly it did. But that's, to me, probably the greatest joy of having written this book is that I set to rights a lot of the misconceptions about him and his theology. So that was a great question. Thank you. Mallory. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I really cannot wait to read this book because it sounds as if you are uh, clarifying a lot of things. Uh, I've been working on a play about uh, World War II Nazism and Adolf Hitler and a very famous priest named Alfred Delp, who was also uh, a martyr to the uh, Nazis. And the thing, Eric, is that amazes me is that in the research for this, I discovered something I had never known. I have lots of Jewish friends, and I've grown up surrounded by Jewish people all my life, and, and I've sometimes heard them having conversations they didn't know I overheard, that, that, that the Christians killed the Jews, that it was, this was a Christian act, and these were Christ-loving people who murdered the Jews. And I'm always so mortified when I hear this. And then I found that all sorts of little tidbits when I did my research. For instance, do you, can you affirm that all Christians were required to take their crucifixes off of the wall and replace each crucifix in every home with a picture of Adolf Hitler? Well, I, I and, have to and various other things like that that I, I wondered if you could even add other. Well, let, let um, me say this, just because the interest of time, and I want to get to the rest of the questions, I will simply say C. Uh, the 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 answer basically, I go into this in depth in the book because I, this was something that I I was I became progressively scandalized the more I read yeah. about how overtly and explicitly anti-Christian the top Nazis were. Yes. Anytime yes. anyone would dare say that Hitler was a Christian or Goebbels was a Christian, I thought you simply you have no idea what you're talking about because th 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 yeah. that that really is like saying uh, you know Genghis Khan was a pacifist. No, 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 no. He was a pacifist. It's it's utterly insane. And I give a pretty much chapter and verse on that uh, oh, in in the book. Oh, wait, you have to because great. otherwise it makes no sense. I mean, the people who killed Jews they were Gentiles. Some of them right. were church going Gentiles. I really find it hard to believe that any serious Christian was involved. I mean, that, that's actually, I shouldn't say that because there are a lot of deluded people who on some technical level, they're Christians or, or whatever. But I guess, because uh, I don't want to overstate that uh, yeah. because Christians are capable of terrible things. But these, right. they're deluded. But, but in the main, um, it was the, the, the Nazi leadership was just vehemently anti-Christian. This came yes. out, I mean, every year that passed, they became clear about that. But I've got at least a couple of chapters on that in the book. So. Oh, thank you so much. I, I really think that this, we all know what brand of toothpaste Britney Spears uses, but we don't know this very obvious fact. I have to it confess, really I don't know what, what, uh... <laughs> but, yes. I, but I would guess Pepsodent. <laughs> Go ahead. 
I can see how Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a martyr and a spy, but how do you call him a prophet? I just needed it for the, for the rhyme scheme. You know. um, by the way, let me just say, the, uh, Douglas Pufford is the last question, so no one else can ask a question. We want to get out of here in a few minutes. Um, the, a prophet, actually, it's funny you say that because um, I almost titled the book something along the lines of God's prophet or something. He was a prophet. Uh, I, I can't explain now because we don't have the time, but trust me, in the book, I go to great lengths to explain how I think he was a prophet. I think he was a prophet in the, in the 20th century, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, I really think that he was, he was a Cassandra. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. He was one of those voices crying out that nobody listens to it. They stoned the prophets. We know what they do, the prophets. Bonhoeffer, he was someone he could see perfectly clearly what was happening. He spoke about it. He tried to get people to hear him. They didn't hear him. Um, on that level, he was a prophet, but he was also a prophet in the true sense uh, in which Cassandra was not a prophet in that he really was hearing from God and he was trying to scream to the church to wake up. Do you see what God is doing? Uh, we know that he failed, but uh, ultimately, I don't think he failed. You, you can't ask your question. No, you can't. No, no, no. We've got strict rules. I, I'm being very generous allowing these three to speak. Go ahead. Oh, no, because you know we, we, you. We've got, we have a thing here at Socrates and City. We are ultra-punctual. You probably didn't know I'm half German, but we don't. a lot of these people have been waiting. Some of them have to use the loo, so we've got just another three seconds. Go ahead. Okay, three seconds. I'm a seminary student at Union. True. So I'm relatively obsessed with Bonhoeffer. And I'm curious, I'm sure you touch on this in your book, um, near the end of his life and his letters and papers from prison, he talked a lot and grappled a lot with a theology of religionless Christianity. And he saw in the future um, religious jargon really diminishing and um, a new language right. emerging. Right. And I'm curious if you think that has happened 65 years later. Um, no, the answer is no. But what Bonhoeffer was writing about, and, and again, this is the other thing, this famous uh, out-of-context Phrase that he wrote to his dearest best friend, the genius Eberhard Beitke, uh, the the letter and the phrase uh, ought never to have seen the light of day, and to have sort of half baked pseudo theologians pick over it and create theologies out of it. It is a tragedy. It's been a tragedy for the American church for the international church that they did that. Bonhoeffer was really referring to religion as dead religion as opposed to, I mean, without, right. we don't have time to go into it now, but I right. think in my book I clarify that or I finally put it in context so people can see what he meant, right. what he didn't mean, and how, uh, in fact, Eberhard Baker in 1967 uh, had a famous quote. I wish I could, I should memorize it, but, but the idea that this, taking this phrase, religionless Christianity, out of context has been a horror Eberhard Beitke said this in 1967. People obviously didn't listen to him, but uh, it really is. Um, anyway, you, you'll have to read the book, so you but do I, talk about it, I talk about it at length. It's very important, so thank Great. you. Thank yes. you.